You can open up your copy of the scriptures back to the book of 2 Corinthians. We took a one-week break from this uh, book of the Bible last Sunday, which was a glorious Sunday. It was a wonderful reason to do so as we commissioned out a family to go to the nations uh, with the gospel of Christ. But uh, if you've been with us the week before that or prior, you know we've been going through this letter of of, uh, the Apostle Paul that we call 2 Corinthians. And so we're going to be in uh, the second half of chapter 5 this morning here in just a moment. But I'll give you a moment to find that. We'll start at verse 11. Uh, but I don't know about you guys, but I am a crier when I watch movies. Uh, and sometimes there's even scenes, maybe you all have scenes like this, that no matter how many times you've watched it, no matter that you know it's coming, you know exactly what's going to be said, you know the reactions, you know everything that's going to happen, it still makes you cry every time that you watch it. I have some scenes that are like that. Uh, and one that was, was fresh on my mind recently uh, is from the movie Hamilton. I've referenced before my my appreciation for that movie, uh, so I want to do so again. But there's a scene in the second half of that movie uh, where there's a powerful scene of forgiveness that takes place between this husband and wife. Uh, That movie, it's a musical depiction of the life of Alexander Hamilton, one of the founders of our country. Uh, But it tells a lot of his personal story, too, even with his family. And uh, him and his wife, Eliza, as they're depicted... Uh, in the movie have had a lot of tension between the two of them. There's been a lot of heartbreak and even mistreatment. There, uh, by this point in the movie, the scene I'm about to describe, uh, we find out uh, Alexander Hamilton has had a very public affair that's just been out in the public's eye that, uh, that has been an embarrassment to her, to Eliza, to her family. She has stayed with him to this point. But we also know that their son has died and that Eliza largely attributes that to her husband, uh, that their son died even seeking to defend the honor of her husband of his dad and so she blames him and there's all this tension between the two of them there's this um, brokenness and there's this powerful song near the the end of that movie in that musical uh, that's called it's quiet uptown and some of you may know this and maybe it could play in your minds as you hear me talk about it Uh, but it, it depicts that after these things have happened there's this breach between the two of them even though they're still married they're largely living quiet lives even right next to each other not really operating as husband and wife not living in union as husband and wife and it it very poetically and movingly describes this just brokenness that's going on in their life but then there's this scene near the end of that very song where the two of them are standing side by side and the song is having you imagine them standing in the garden at their house And even though there's been all this tension, all this breach of trust, all this brokenness of the marriage covenant even, and pain, there's this very simple gesture that Eliza does to her husband where there's just standing kind of stone cold looking forward and she reaches out her hand to his and the song just says this simple uh, lyric that she takes his hand and it's to symbolize that she's forgiving him. And then, then the chorus just breaks in, they sing a few times, they say, forgiveness, can you imagine? It's just, I cry every time I watch this thing. Like, I know literally what they're about to sing. I know the reaction that's about to be on his face when he senses the forgiveness, but it still moves me every time. Like, I, I showed it to my kids this morning, and I cried again, like, showing it to them uh, this morning. Uh, but I think there's something that's right about that, and maybe you have cried when, if you have watched that, or maybe you have other scenes like that. There's something about stories of reconciliation 
that are particularly moving for us as human beings. Uh, where there's something, and we all know this in our experience, whether we're little kids or we're senior citizens, uh, we all know that there's few things in life that are more painful than broken relationships, right? But there's few things also that are more powerful than restored ones. Like where you see that there's, been, there's forgiveness that's been granted. There's actually fellowship and sweetness and kindness uh, between these people who used to be separate, who used to be torn apart. And I think the reason stories like that resonate with us isn't just because we know that these things happen between us and our spouse or us and our parents or us and our friends or us and uh, whoever, fellow human, but we know that this is the story that needs to happen between us and God. That, that there's this breach, that there's been this brokenness, this, this lack of fellowship between us and God that we were made to enjoy. And there needs to be reconciling. There needs to be a bringing back together of us and God. And I, I mention all this as a precursor to today's text because today's text is going to speak, especially the second half of it, very much about reconciliation. You're going to see that word a couple times, that concept talked about by the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to read this text here in just a moment and we're going to learn about how God has reconciled us to himself if we're united through uh, faith to Jesus, how he's reconciled to us, but then how he gives us a ministry of reconciliation, that he gives us a message, he gives us a ministry even of reconciling to take to other people. But before we read it, just want to make sure you know where we are in this letter uh, so we can drop into it in an informed way, okay? So this was written by a man named Paul. He was one of the apostles in the early church that Jesus had sent out to start churches, to speak on his behalf, and he had actually started this church in the city of Corinth years before this letter. Uh, He has visited a few times since then, but there's been this obvious tension that's evident in this letter between the church and him, where since he's been gone, there's been these teachers that have come into this church who are casting doubt upon Paul and his credibility, casting doubt on his authority. Uh, They're they're lobbing things, accusations about him. You're going to see they kind of maybe even make fun of him. We'll see in today's text that they say sometimes he's beside himself when he's speaking. Uh, So there's been this, this breach even between Paul and the Corinthians that he's seeking to restore. And make no mistake, as he, in this section of this letter, he is trying to defend himself. He's trying to defend himself and his ministry, but he's not an insecure man. It's not like he's just like worried so much about what they think and he's just scrambling to get their approval. He knows, and you'll see it when we read it, he knows he has God's approval. And that's what's foremost in his mind. He has the approval of God. But he does want this church to approve of him also. He does want them to see him as a credible minister of God, as a messenger of Christ. And so he's going to great lengths to defend himself, defend his ministry, not so much for his own sake, but for the sake of Jesus. To say, he has sent me. He has commissioned me. You need to listen to me and, and uh, receive me as such. So you're going to see he talks a lot about reconciliation as he's describing his ministry and even defending it. One thing, just so we know what reconciliation is, and then we finally will jump into this text. It's a word we might not use a lot. Uh, reconciliation is this, uh, this restoring of relationship, right? It's where there's been breach, there's been obstacles that have kept people from relating to each other as friends or as, as just people who love one another. There's been this breach of relationship. The Bible speaks very much of what Jesus has done for us in some other terms other than reconciling. Sometimes Paul, even the guy who writes this, writes about how Jesus justifies us. 
Uh, that is more of this image of a courtroom, like that, that we were legally guilty. We need to be declared righteous legally. That's something Jesus has gained for us. Other times he talks about redemption, right? That's a word that you hear a lot. That's more of like a marketplace idea, like a transaction idea, like he has bought us back. He has paid the price to win us back to God. Reconciliation is, instead of thinking of, John Stott has said this, I didn't make this up, but instead of thinking of a courtroom or a marketplace, when you start to think of reconciliation, it's more this idea of like a living room or a dining room table, like where, where you are welcomed into a family, you're welcomed into fellowship with this God who you've wronged. And so that's what he's going to be talking about when he speaks about God reconciling us to himself, is him bringing us back into his living room of sorts, into fellowship with him. That is something we are granted through Jesus, and that is a glorious thing. I'm going to read this text for us. There is tons in here. I'll just say that up front. There's a lot of famous, even Christianese, that is in uh, these passages. They're glorious things. Uh, but I'm going to read it for us. And I trust that the Spirit will take even what's read and apply it to you. But I, after I read it, I'll go back through and try to unpack some of it for us. This glorious thing of God reconciling us to himself. And then him using us to be a messenger of reconciliation to others. So follow along with me in the Word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. 11, and I'm going to go down to actually chapter 6, verse 2, okay? The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues his letter writing this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listen to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the word of God. 
What a glorious text. Uh, and normally I will, uh, and all of our preachers will start at the beginning of a text and walk through it. I'm going to do it a little bit different today. I'm going to start at a middle point in this text that I think kind of encapsulates the thickness of what he's saying in this section, verses 18 and 19, is where I want to start and then kind of branch out from there and show you some things before it and after it that, that support what Paul is saying in verses 18 and 19. You see that these are very similar verses. Almost, It's almost verbatim but it's slightly different words that he says in verses 18 and then in verse 19 just like he says it once then kind of clarifying it again sometimes we do that when we talk right uh, but in these verses I, I want us I want us to see on the, the screen how similar they are uh, but we're going to see in this text in these verses 18 and 19 we're going to see that Paul talks about what God has done for us and then what he calls us to do for him or on his behalf right he talks about what God's done for us than what he calls us to do for him. And you can see how similar, I kind of rearranged some of the words, but kept all the words themselves. Uh, but how Paul says things in verse 18 and 19. First, in both of them, he says what God has done for us, right? In both of them, he says, God, verse 18, he says, God, through Christ, this is what God did first through Jesus, he reconciled us to himself. And we'll talk more about what that means in a minute. Verse 19, he says almost the same thing, right? He says, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. So there's this act, that, this grand, wonderful, unspeakably good thing that God has done of reconciling us sinners to himself. But then note the second thing that he says in both of these verses as well. He, he says something that God entrusts to us in Christ, through Christ, when we're united with him. It's not just that he does something for us, but he calls us to do something and be part of something on his behalf. So if you see back in verse 18, he also says that God, through Christ, gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. So there's this, this ministry that we're supposed to do towards others of, of reconciling. And he says very similarly in verse 19 that God in Christ entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. So it's similar language. One he gave, one he entrusted, one's a, a message, one's a ministry. But there's this act that he calls us to do on his behalf. As people who've been reconciled to God, he then calls us to be part of taking that message to other people and calling them to be reconciled to God, right? If you know me well, you know I quote Charles Spurgeon a lot. I, I read his commentaries as much as I can, his sermons. He said of these very verses, 18 and 19, he talked about, and I want to borrow his terms here as outline today, he talked about the work of reconciliation that was accomplished by Jesus, the work of reconciliation, and then he talked about the word of reconciliation that's entrusted to us. And I want to use those as two headings because I think that's what Paul's getting at in this entire section is the work of, uh, of reconciliation done by Jesus and then the word of reconciliation that's entrusted to us. And both are hugely important. Uh, but one's important that it comes first, the work that God has done for us. And so I want you to see from this text a few things that Paul says about this work of reconciling that God has done, uh, this thing he has done for us us, of, of reconciling us to himself. This is so important for us to know about ourself and about what God has done for us. You see in this text, and almost it just oozes in everything that Paul ever writes, you see how badly we need reconciliation. Uh, that, that, that we are not neutral people, we are not good people in the sight of God left ourselves. We desperately need to be reconciled to God. We need to be invited back into his living room, back to his table, right? We don't deserve that, we don't gain that by our righteousness. And you see that in a couple places in this text, right? 
even if we would have read the very verse before what I read, like if you go back to verse 10, what he had just written to them right before what we read today, he had mentioned how someday we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged. That someday every person in this room will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. That, it, that will take place in your life. That someday you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul, as he starts this text for today, verse 11, talks about how that produces this fear of the Lord, this like reverence, this weightiness about Christ and who he is and the fact that he will judge us someday. And Paul says, knowing that, knowing that someday all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he says, the start of verse 11, so we persuade others. He wants people to be ready for that day, to be ready for the judgment of Christ when it comes. And so he, he, he's trying to prepare people for this. And he shows us in this text that how badly we need that reconciliation. If you look, uh, I would say it this way, that what, our need to be reconciled comes from two things. One is what we have, and one is what we lack. Okay? In this text, you see that what we have that's problematic is that we have trespasses. Right? That's what he talks about in verse 19. Right? He says that through Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And then this was one of the obstacles. The, the primary obstacle that needed to be removed was that he was not counting their trespasses against them. We all have trespassed God's law, haven't we? In countless ways that we don't even know. We, we do this regularly. We trespass. We see no trespassing signs. It's not a mystery to us what trespassing means, right? When we see it in the Bible, trespassing means like you go into a place, you do something that you're being told not to do, right? You're going onto someone's property that you're told don't come here. We do that with regard to God's law. We are trespassing against his law that he has given to us in the Bible and that he's laid in our conscience. We go against his law all the time. So there's this problem of what we have, we have trespasses. But the second problem that, that needs dealt with to reconcile us to God is what we lack. That we lack righteousness. So we have trespasses, according to verse 19. Verse 21 talks about how we lack, or it implies at least, that we lack righteousness. That we need righteousness to be given to us. It's not just that when my sin is dealt with, when my trespasses are removed and I'm made neutral somehow, that God's just going to reward me for that. But I need righteousness. I need a good, obedient record to be received by God, to be reconciled to him. And we're going to see in this text that Paul, in a few different ways, talks then about how that reconciliation is provided, how those two problems are solved. The, the removal of what we have, and the granting of what we lack. He, he, especially in verse 21, you will see this. But I want to start back at verse 18 as we think about how God has provided reconciliation to us. Verse 18, this is so important, starts where he says that this work of reconciling, he says, all this is from God. That, don't read past that. Like the work of being reconciled to God is all a work of God. It is not something that you do. It is not something that you earn. It is not something that you achieve, that you gain for yourself. It, if you are reconciled to God, it is all from him. Uh, when Eliza and Alexander were standing next to each other, she was the one who reached the handout, right? She was the one who had been wronged. And the same is true with us and God. We have offended him. If, if we are to be reconciled to him, it's because he provides it for us, not because we gain it from him. So it comes from God. And verse 18 also then says it comes through Christ. 
uh, that it comes through something and things he has done for us. But now I want to point you to verse 21. This is one of the most glorious texts in all the New Testament. It is a little wordy. Uh, You've got to track along a little bit with what Paul is saying. But in this text, he shows us how reconciliation can happen. How it is that that problem of what we have and what we lack can be resolved. In verse 21, he uses this language of things being made into something else or counted as something else. It's this language that uh, theologians call imputation, or something being imputed to another person. And we'll get into the details of this verse in a second, but he's going to say that there's certain things from us that get counted to Jesus, and there's certain things from Jesus that get counted to us. Our sin gets imputed to Jesus. His righteousness gets imputed to us. And if you're struggling with the idea of imputation, imputation. I was trying to think of an example or two. If you ever, this is very rare in real life, although I've had somebody do this one time. If you ever hear somebody say, hey, put his stuff on my tab. Like, who does that, right? Like, who has tabs in the first place at a restaurant? But if somebody does that, what they're saying is, whatever she's getting, whatever he's getting, like, count the cost of that to me. Like, I'll pay for it. Like, basically pretend like I ordered that, like I ate that. Count it to me. Or if you're in school, kids, if you ever have a group project, uh, if you maybe have four of you who get assembled into a group project, which I hated group projects when I was a kid. Uh, But if you have one person amongst the group who is, like, diligent and willing to work hard and the rest three of you are lazy and you know they're going to do it. I was usually that one kid, like goody two-shoes. Like if they do all the work and put in all the effort on behalf of all of you, and especially if the teacher doesn't realize it, guess what? Like if they earned a good grade, it's getting counted to all of you right? Like even though you did nothing, their work is essentially getting counted to you. And so Paul in verse 21 is talking about things being counted to another person. Not something they did themselves, but it's getting counted to them as if they did, right? So he says in verse 21, he says, for our sake, God does this thing. For our sake, he, that's God the Father, he made, and I'm going to rearrange some of the words here for clarity's sake. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin. Who is that? This should be, I hope, obvious. Who is the one human being who knew no sin? Jesus, right? So God is going to do something to the one who knew no sin. He says that he made him to be sin. This is this imputation idea where he took the sin of other people. God the Father took the sin of other people like us sitting in these chairs or standing at this stage. He took our sins and counted them to Jesus. He transferred them to him at the cross. And so as Jesus was dying upon the cross, that first obstacle was dealt with, right? right, What we have, these trespasses, these offenses against God, they were removed from us and put on Jesus, counted to him, and God the Father put him to death on the cross for our sins and for our trespasses. Poured out all of his anger, all of his judgment upon his very son, the one who in and of himself knew no sin. Like our sin was counted to him so that it might be not counted, like verse 19, not counted to us. It was counted to him. That's the first half of what Paul says in verse 21. The second half deals with the second problem of what we lack. He, sa- he says, so that, this reconciling work, he says, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. 
And so the, this is where the life Jesus lived was very important, right? That, that he had lived obediently for three plus decades of life, following the commands of God, living righteously, deserving the reward and the favor and the blessing of his Father. When God raised him back from the dead on that Sunday morning, he was showing that this son of mine actually is righteous. He has lived righteously. And now what he does is he invites us who are sinful to be joined with his son by faith. And he says that righteous life that Jesus lived, that righteousness of God that he lived out and that he gained can be counted to us. That is gloriously good news. Because we can't achieve what God calls us to do. We can't be who calls, God calls us to be on our own. But the righteousness of Jesus can be counted to us. And when God raised him back up from the dead that morning, you get hints of this in this text even today. When God raised Jesus up in the tomb that Sunday morning, he was beginning a brand new era for humanity. He was beginning a new creation, like verse 17 talks about. He was raising this son of his up to never die again, making him Lord of the universe, Lord of all. He was beginning this new creation, the glorious thing that can happen for us. It has happened, I believe, for me, and for many in this room has happened for you, is that when you place your trust in Christ, you get swept up, so to speak, into that new creation. That you get joined into that, that one who God has rewarded now, the one that God has blessed, this, this head of this human race, this new world. You get to be swept up and be part of that new creation now. So that's why he can say in verse 17, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You're part of that new creation that God has established. But the fact that you're united with him. That's what he's getting at. I don't have time to get into it a lot. But the first couple verses of chapter 6, he quotes Isaiah chapter 49. The Apostle Paul does, which I'd encourage you to read that sometime. It is a beautiful, beautiful chapter where Isaiah was prophesying this new age that would come with the Messiah, where, where the, the valleys would be lifted up and the mountains would be dry and they, all people could easily come to God now to become part of his people. And the, the uh, prophet Isaiah had anticipated and prophesied this time and Paul saying, that had started. Like that, that new creation, that new era, that day of salvation has started now and you can be part of it. Like you can be swept into this new creation that will never end. That will, you can be given a life that will never be taken from you. And so the work of reconciling is done by God through Christ. The, the dealing with these problems of what we have and what we lack. But I want to point out that this reconciling to God you see this in a few places in this text, is only for those who are in Christ. It's not just God reconciled everything, everyone to himself as Jesus went to the cross, but specifically multiple times in this text, especially in verse 18 and 19, he says that, or in 21 also, he says that we must be in Christ to be reconciled to God. There, there's a change that has to take place in us. There, we must be united with that son, Jesus, that God has sent for us. And I would appeal to you in this room, all of you here, who have, have yet to place your faith in Jesus, who still have that problem of your sin and that lack of righteousness, I would appeal to you based on verse 20 and even using the language of verse 20, I appeal to you today to be reconciled to God. You can be. 
Today, you can be reconciled to God. It's not something you have to do. It's not something you have to gain. It's not something you have to earn. It's something that you receive from him. All he calls you to do is to turn from your sin and place your trust in his son. And he unites you you with him. He sees you as being linked with his son and receiving all his righteousness. And he sees you linked with his son, having all your trespasses already punished. Today you can be reconciled to God and I would call upon you to do so. To cry out to him, say, please forgive me based on what your son has done and he will. Like that is a promise I hold out to you based on these, this very text that he will reconcile you to himself if you call out to him as such. And so Paul has talked in this text about the work of reconciliation that God has done for us, but a glorious thing and a weighty thing uh, that I've thought much about this week and I, I want you to think about is what God then entrusts to us who've been reconciled. That's a lot of what he's getting at in this text is not just that we've been reconciled, that is a glorious thing we should rejoice in till the day we die and beyond, uh, that God has reconciled us to himself. But in this text, a few different times, he talks about the work or the word of reconciliation that's been given to us to do on behalf of God, to do as partners even. He talks about uh, in verse 1 like of chapter 6, we work together with him. So if you look back at verse 18 and 19, he says that God reconciled us to himself, but then he entrusted us or gave us the ministry of reconciliation and the message of reconciliation. So borrowing Spurgeon's heading, I wanted the second half, I want to talk about the word of reconciliation that God's entrusted to us to take to others. So he talks in verse 19 about this message of reconciliation that we've been given. As ones who've been reconciled, he gives us this message to take to other people. Very simply, that what the message were to take to other people whether it's to the ends of the earth like we talked about last week or whether it's to our next door neighbor uh, like we can think about every day of the week. Uh, when we take a message to people of reconciliation, it's not a complicated message. Like what the message we are taking to them is the good news of Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus. The, it's this message that we are sinners, we have trespasses, we have offended God and we are guilty. But God in his mercy and kindness has sent his son to become our savior to die in our place upon the cross, to be raised from the dead on our behalf. And this offer we can give to them, just as I extend to you today, is that you can be reconciled to God because of Jesus. If you will turn from your sin, place your trust in him, no matter how old you are, young you are, what gender you are, what ethnicity you are, no matter how heinous you think your sins are or innocent you thought your sins are, you can be reconciled to God because of the work of Jesus. And that's what we hold out to people, right? We must be careful that we get that message right. That we don't add things to it. That, and we must make sure as we seek to see people be reconciled to God that we are doing more than just inviting people to church. Or that we're just trying to call them to give up their life of sin. Or that we're just calling them to, to live morally. Or just believe that God exists. Those are good things. But what we call people to, the message of reconciliation is a message of reconciliation that only comes through Jesus. And so we have to be willing to 
tell people of their sin, and then offer them the gift of salvation through Jesus. That is what we offer to people. And we must make sure that we do that and that we don't hold out on them. That we, and, but also that we don't call them to do something to gain reconciliation, to, to live a life as if they can be reconciled on their own. We must remind them over and over, because the human heart doesn't want to believe this, that reconciliation is a gift given to them not something earned by them, right? We must make sure we get that message right. But the manner in which we take that message to them is important. That's a lot of what Paul's getting at in this section today is even in his own ministry, how he takes that message of reconciliation is important. How he talks to people, how he serves them is important. And how we do is as well. Next Sunday, we'll get to talk more about the I would say like the relational implications of reconciliation, of how we even are reconciled as fellow believers, how we relate to each other. But in this section of the text today, what he's talking about is taking this good news. It's more talking about evangelism as a ministry of reconciliation, that we take a message to the unbelieving world, a message of Christ. And so I want to point out a couple of things in this text of how Paul talks about taking the word of reconciliation to people. And for us to think as we are messengers on God's behalf, how do we take that to people? How do we talk to them? How do we engage with them about the good news? A couple things I would point out. And these are going to be some adverbs uh, for you. Uh, Think about the manner in which we take this message of reconciliation. The first is that we should do so lovingly. As we take the message of reconciliation through Christ, we should do so lovingly. If you look at verse 14... He says that the love of Christ controls us. Here's my say, compels us. Uh, him, when he says the love of Christ there, I believe he's saying the love of Christ for us, not our love of Christ. So love of Christ in the sense of like Christ's love for us is what motivates us. So as we think about the loss and as we think about our role in their life, we must be motivated by love. By remember first Christ's love for me, how he has demonstrated that love to me, but also remembering his love for the lost. His love for the people that are yet to be reconciled to him. That must motivate us, compel us, control us as we go out to speak to them. As a, We must not be harsh and cold and, and unnecessarily just brash with people, but that we are loving, we are compassionate towards people as we take this good news to them. So we should do it lovingly. We should be ministers of reconciliation, taking this message obediently also. Some of us, it naturally comes out, this gift of evangelism. We want to go talk to people. We want to share the good news. Some of us are very reluctant to do that. Uh, And we need to be reminded that we are not to live for ourselves any longer. We are not to just follow our own impulses, our own inclinations, our own desires, our own wants of how I'm going to spend my time, how I'm going to use my words. If you look at verse 15, Paul says this simple but glorious thing. He says that when we have died with Christ... He says that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. If you're united with Jesus, your life, my life belongs to him. Like I'm to live it how he tells me to live it. I'm to do the things that he tells me to do. And one of the things that he tells me to do is to be a minister of reconciliation, to take this message of reconciliation to others. And if I'm not naturally inclined to that, then I need to ask for God's help to do it. But it's not an optional thing. We, we should do so obediently, knowing this is something God calls us to. 
we should, when we take the good news, we should do so. A third thing is discerningly. And what I mean by that is based on verse 16, how, where he's talking about whether we regard people according to the flesh or not. Uh, there's different understandings of what people think he means, but it seems like he's saying that, that there's this temptation in us as human beings is to just judge people by external appearances, to just kind of judge a book by its cover, so to speak, and whatever our, our natural assumption is about these people based on what they look like, how they speak, how they present themselves, to just assume that it's saying something true about their heart, that that's true about them at the depths of who they are. And Paul is saying that we ought to not just regard people according to what's obvious and external. And this is where it's important in evangelism. I think especially in a town like ours, I feel this, and maybe you do too, our town, our community has been in, met, in large part, and I'm thankful for this, impacted by the gospel over the decades. Where there's a sense of like politeness, a sense of like morality, cordiality, like being good neighbors, being good citizens, things like that. When we see that externally in people, I think a lot of times what we think is that, oh, that must be a sign that they're born again. They must believe in Jesus. Like surely they're a Christian. And that is not always true. Often it's not. Like what, what we must do as we engage with people is not just to on face value because they appear moral or because they appear godly to just assume that they're resting their soul on Christ. There are many virtuous, in comparison to other human beings, virtuous people who are on a path to hell. Like who are not united with Christ. Who are not reconciled to God. Who have no regard for Jesus. No hatred for sin in their life. They've grown up in a Christian community that upholds certain values and they seek to live those things out. But we must not just simply regard people according to the flesh, what appears to be obvious about them, but really press to see, are you resting your soul upon Christ? Are you reconciled to God? So we should do so discerningly. We should share the gospel. We should be ministers of reconciliation. Also, a fourth thing, confidently confident not because we're persuasive or we're winsome or we're clever or we have all the answers but confident because based on verse 17 that God has begun a new creation in Christ like a, a new order a new era has started with Jesus as its head and if you're a Christian God has miraculously changed you right like he has taken a dead person in you and made you alive he has taken a heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh he, he has done that miracle in you. Like, so why when we look around at people who are unbelieving do we think he couldn't do it to them? Like that, that the gospel is now weak for this person. Or God's arm is too short to reach that person. It was long enough to reach me but it's too short to win this person. God has begun a new creation and he can save anyone at any time. And we should share the gospel confidently, that it's the power of God to save, right? We should share the gospel confidently. And the last adverb I want to share with you is that we should share the gospel. We should be taking this message of reconciliation. I was trying to think what adverb to use. The best one I can come up with is earnestly. And this is what I mean when I say that. I want you to point it, or I want to point out to you a couple of words Paul uses in this text that are just lodged in my mind and heart this week. And I think you'll see kind of a common thread to them. If you look back at verse 11, as Paul's talking about his, the way he speaks to people, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And then down, if you jump way down to verse 20, he says that we're ambassadors for Christ. Then he says, we implore you 
on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And then in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. I've been very convicted this week that a lot of times when I do speak of the gospel to people, when I share it with them, a lot of times I am just trying to make sure I get the facts right. Like that I just say, I make sure they know, hey, like you're a sinner. <laughs> That's not what I start with usually. It depends. Uh, but they need to know that, right? They need to know their guilt. They need to know that a Savior has been sent for them. They need to know that he died, that our sin was counted to him, that his righteousness can be counted to us. They need to know that forgiveness can be granted through him only by faith. They need to know that he's going to return again and someday they'll be judged by him. But too often, I've been very convicted about this even this morning, like too often I just try to make sure I get the facts right and make sure they've heard it and then I've like kind of washed my hands of it. Paul, it's like, he's, it's like he's pleading with these people. Like, when Paul would talk to unbelievers, I don't think he was just presenting the cold, hard facts of the gospel. Just, here it is, take it or leave it. Like, he's imploring with these people. He's, some of your translations may say, I beg of you. Like, there, there should be tears in our eyes. I, if we think about unbelieving people in our families, in our community, in our workplace, they are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ someday. Like, how can we just offer coldly, like, hey, you can be forgiven. Like, take it or leave it. Like, why don't we have more tears when we talk? Why don't I, when I talk to people about Christ, why don't I beg of them and implore them? Why don't I have what olden time people would call unction? Like, I, I care about what I'm saying, and it shows in how I talk about him. And I, I know that you know how badly I think you need this. Like if there was a fire in this building right now, which there has been before, one time long ago, uh, if there was a fire in this building and you were the first one to see it and you knew it's going to spread quick, like would you just like quietly come and be like, hey, like there's a fire. And like if the person who first hears like whatever, like you wouldn't just be like, okay, whatever, like and just keep moving along, right? Like you would go tell another person, like, and if people aren't listening, your urgency would grow because you know what's at stake, you know what's coming. That should be true of us. Like when we know people are facing something way worse than a building fire, like they're facing the judgment of God for their sins, how can we just cold, maybe sometimes not even tell them? Or when we do be cold and like calculated and mechanical of how we tell them the good news of Jesus, may we plead with them, may we implore them, may we appeal with them earnestly. This could be tempting for us as we read this text to think Paul's just describing his own ministry, the ministry of an apostle, which he is. He's defending his ministry as an apostle. It could be tempting for us to just think, well, this ministry of reconciliation is just something for pastors to do or missionaries to do, church planters to do. That's their work to do. But I would emphasize to us, I think, and I, I, this is based on other texts as well, based on, on the word of God as a whole, that what Paul says of himself in verse 20, we could equally say about us that God is making his appeal through us. That is a weighty and exciting thing to think about. That the way God makes his appeal is through us. Like through ones he's reconciled. He sends us out with that message to go take to others. And why would we not want to be takers of that message, ministers of that message, 
if God really has brought us back to his dining room, back to his living room, back to his family, he's reconciled us to himself, why would we not be eager to go tell others about it? To offer that to them and say, you can be part of this. Like you just like I am. It ought to be something that we do. I'd summarize this whole message by saying this and then we'll sing. Based on verses 18 and 19, if you remember those where he says that God has done something for us in Christ and he entrusts us with something I say this, that if God's work of reconciliation has been applied to you, then his word of reconciliation has been entrusted to you. Like if his work of reconciliation has been applied to you, believer in this room, then his word of reconciliation has been entrusted to you. May we be good stewards of it. May we be good sharers of it. May we do it lovingly, obediently, discerningly, confidently, and earnestly. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing another song, a song we learned last week that I loved singing with you and look forward to singing with you again. But I'm going to pray for us, then we will sing. Father in heaven, we uh, left ourselves, even though we are your creatures, we are your enemies. We have wronged you. We've trespassed your law. Knowingly and unknowingly, we lack righteousness. But we are grateful beyond what words can say that you have reconciled us to yourself, that you've sent a savior, that you've counted our sins to him and that you've counted his righteousness to us. But we are also grateful and humbled that you would entrust the ministry of reconciliation to us, that you would speak through through jars of clay like us, through weak and sinful men and women and boys and girls like us. May we take that seriously and may we joyfully Take the good news of Jesus wherever we go. And we pray this in his name. Amen.